Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all for downloading our show today, wherever you are listening. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, what a show we have lined up for you today with the super coach himself and a man widely regarded as one of the greatest coaches in our sport of all time, a man who is one half of the greatest combination in swimming and Olympic history, the other half, a swimmer you may know by the name of Michael Phelps. Yes, that's right. Today's special guest is none other than Mr. Bob Bowman. Now, I caught up with Bob last week via a Zoom chat all the way from his home in Arizona, had a fantastic conversation with him about you know how he's dealing with COVID-19 at the moment, how it's affected him and his program, how he's been improving himself away from the pool with some at-home baking, his early introduction into swimming, as well as his days in college. And no doubt we cover his amazing career and relationship with one of the greatest of all time, Mr. Michael Phelps, from his early introduction to Michael all the way through to life now and the 28 Olympic medals and records all in between. Now, we also discuss the other athletes that Bob's been coaching, including Alison Schmidt, as well as his book and life away from the pool. Now, if you were ever going to stop what you were doing and pay attention to an episode of Off the Block Swimming Podcast, please make it this one because Ep 19 with the master coach himself, Bob Bowman, starts now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a metre on Van der Noot's hand. But the signature of all eyes is the great Madam Butterfly, Susie O'Neill. He's coming back. Oh, he's shot. He can't do it to him again. Chavis in the white hats. Phelps in the black hats. And Phelps has got it. I cannot believe he's done that. Thorpe to Thorpe. Thorpe to the hall. Thorpe goes in. Joining us today on the show is a man who in the world of swimming really needs no introduction, but as he's been kind enough to join us all the way from Arizona in the US, I will definitely be giving him one befitting a person who has achieved legendary status in our sport. Now, he's a five-time Olympic Games coach and in 2016 for Rio was named head coach of the USA's men's team. An athlete he is synonymous with is a young man from Baltimore, Maryland, you may know by the name of Michael Phelps. Now, Phelps collaborated with our guest today in achieving a staggering 28 Olympic medals, which 23 of those were gold, which is just mind-blowing enough. But along with his other amazing athletes, he also amassed over 40 Olympic medals. He is a best-selling author of his book, The Golden Rules, and is the lead coach of Arizona State University. Now, there are many, many, many more accolades here for us to unpack, and I'm sure we'll get through to all of them during the podcast. So let's not waste any time. It is a massive welcome to Off the Block Swimming Podcast from all the way across the other side of the world to Mr. Bob Bowman. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Hey, not a trouble at all. Now, it's 8 a.m. here in Sydney. Um, you know, it's 3 p.m. over there. What have you been up to today so far? Well, I've done a bunch of Zoom calls because that's what we do, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> meetings on Zoom and uh, did some exercise. I did my f- first yoga class today, which was not easy. Yeah. Uh, so there, that's it. That's all I have to report. How did you go with the yoga? Are you sore? Uh, not yet, but probably tomorrow. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I don't want to spend too much time on a uh, COVID-19 stuff because obviously yeah. you know, this is about you and I want to keep it upbeat and, and positive, but obviously it's a, a pandemic that's affected the world greatly. Swimming aside for a second, how have you been affected and, and your family? Well, fortunately, everybody in my circle is healthy, but uh, we've been isolated now for, I think this is the fifth week. And uh, my isolation is my house and then Michael's house. So between here and there, that's the only place I've been in five weeks. But it's been actually pretty good. I love playing with the grandkids and I'm teaching the little guys how to swim. So it's, it hasn't been terrible. <laughs> hey, Tokyo Olympics postponed to 2021, as we know, about five, six yeah. weeks ago. How did you address this with your athletes? Um, and, and, you know, with all the, the varying reactions with different athletes, how did you go with that? Well... I guess I was one of the people who was advocating for it. So mm. I'm happy that that happened because it's the only chance we really had for a fair games. And who knows if it can even happen now, but at least we have a good chance. Um, I was just honest with the athletes and all the ones that we're training were uh, understanding about it. I think the only one that it probably created an issue for is Allison Schmidt. Mm. You know, she's 29 years old. She was mm. going to go for her fourth Olympics. And uh, so stretching it another year at that point is a challenge, but she's going to do it. And uh, they've all sort of stuck in and, and gotten ready to prepare for next summer. It's interesting you say that. Um, I speak to a lot of Australian athletes, as you know, on the podcast, and, and I've asked the same question. You know, how did they deal with it mentally, the, the news? And it, it has been so varied with you know, people saying they had injuries coming into this, so now they're cheering now, like, yes, I've got a year yeah. to sort of get myself ready. And there's people, same as you just said, that were like looking at this as the last hurrah, and then they wanted to go on and have a family or start their business, and they're like, oh, God damn, really? Another year? Exactly. Well, it's good for the up and comers, right? The young kids. Yeah. They're going to be some people, some people who weren't ready this summer who will be ready next summer. So that'll be something to look forward to. Uh, absolutely. Mate, now I think one of the biggest anomalies with regards to next year's Olympics is when, you know, swimmers are allowed to return back into the pool. I mean, all over the world, you know, it's going to be you know, different protocols and, and different rules, no doubt. Do you have much clarity, you know, whether when you guys are allowed to get back in the pool for full training with, with the squad and everyone back together? I, I don't have much clarity. Um, my hope is that at the end of May, I can start back with at least our professional group, definitely not the college group, I don't think. Mm. And we can sort of, there's only a small group of them, it's like eight of them. So we could get maybe those started with some extreme distancing. We were actually able to continue on with them much later than the college team once everything was shut down. So yeah. I'm hoping the next step will be to get them back in and then hopefully add the college team by June would be my hope. But we don't have any real clarity about it. Mm. And, and I guess, you know, coming back into the pool, would there have to be things like, I know here they're doing a lot of temperature checks and, and things like that. It wouldn't just be a matter of, oh, okay, you're allowed back in the pool. There's oh, no, there's gonna, there will be a lot. We had a meeting. The meeting I was on today was our athletic department talking about those kind of things. And it yeah. will be very regimented and there'll be a lot of regulations about it. Mate, one thing uh, I know you would have noticed in recent months is, is the interest around dry land programs and what coaches and athletes are doing to stay fit and keep everything ticking over, whether it yeah. be Zoom training sessions or backyard pools with the bungee cord. How have you approached your training with your athletes during this time and, and what sort of changes have you made that you might end up keeping after all of this is done, like you've 
realized, wow, that's actually a, a really great um, way of doing it. Well, we've actually had some of our athletes in a, an endless pool, right? A swim spa training. Yeah. So I've been designing some programs for them for that. And there are some things I really like about it. I haven't actually been at the sessions, but just the way they're put together, the stress that they get that's different from being in a regular pool, I think there's some value to that. And certainly, technically, there is some value to that because we had great video from it. They video it every day, and I get to see the video from it. Um, on a dry land standpoint, I think we've individualized things so that people can work on maybe some weaknesses or heal up some things that they were, you know, had been bothering them. And that's always a good thing. And I'd like to kind of keep that going as we go forward. You know, we have a strength coach at ASU, uh, Gavin Walker, who's very, very good. And he's been designing programs for the kids to do at home. And uh, he's got some variability in there for their individual needs. And I think that's been a very good thing. Mate, with the pools, um, you know, in the backyard or wherever it may be at their homes, did, did you get access to that? Did you get given that? I know I saw, I think, Adam Peaty and a few English athletes actually got, got pools given to them and put in their backyard. So how did well, you get Well, actually, I got really lucky because my assistant, Rachel Stratton Mills, is married to Glenn Mills, who runs a business called Go Swim. Yeah. Probably seen their videos. Yeah, yeah. They do a lot of swimming videos. Well, he has one in his backyard. So they're paying for time over there, which helps him out a little bit. <laughs> And uh, so that kind of fell in our laps. Um, Allison actually teaches lessons at a country club and they have a short course pool where they're letting few people go in, yeah. you know, at, so she's getting in probably four times a week for about an hour. So that's not too bad, but that's a real pool. 25 yeah, yeah. yard pool. That's yeah. very fortunate. Yeah. Mate, something all of the time away from the pool has done for us has helped us get stuck into activities or self-upskilling things, uh, you know, putting time into, you know, things that we ordinarily would have our head down, ass up, right, doing coaching. And we just, right, right. oh, we'll get to that one day. We just never do. Is it true you've been, you know, doing this yourself with some masterclass in uh, online stuff with fundamentals of French pastries? And if so, you know, what have you been baking, mate? Have you got some croissants, some eclairs, some crepes? <laughs> I haven't gotten that advanced yet. I'm trying to do some breads. They actually turned out okay. Um, and some more kind of basic dessert type things. But uh, I'm also taking a master class just in general cooking about with Chef Thomas Keller, who's the chef at the, well, he's the owner now of the French Laundry, which is the number one restaurant in America. Yeah, I was nice. lucky to go there in August. And uh, so I'm kind of watching his stuff and picking up some stuff about general cooking as well. But yeah, I'm trying to learn a few things. Mate, give the listeners uh, a little insight into a story you told me before we started recording in You're terms right. of your baking <laughs> and, uh, and what uh, Michael uh, said. Well, you know, Michael has started cooking dinners for the family and he's been doing it for about a year now and he's getting quite good at it. Um, and we, I brought over something for the kids. I can't remember, some muffins or something. And we were talking about baking. And Michael was, you know, trying to be me and sort of critique my muffins. I think <laughs> was cool. And I said, you are better than me at pretty much everything in the world except for baking. If we bake 100 times out of 100, I will beat you. And he got really mad about it. He said, no, I would win at least five. I was like, no, 100 out of 100, I would beat you. And he just got so pissed off that now we are going to have a bake-off. 
I guess the wife's going to judge it. I don't know. Or the kids. I'll have to like bribe them with candy beforehand. Tell you what, that'd be must-watch sort of TV to take off. Could be like MasterChef. (laughs) Exactly. We'll get some judges in. (laughs) Obviously, in the end, unfortunately, Michael will have to win. I think that's just the way for TV ratings. It's just not going to end well. Yeah, you know, I could give it up for the team. One thing I I like to do with the podcast is take the listeners back to the beginning of of swimmers and and coaches' careers so they can get a much better understanding and appreciation, you know, of the heights that you reached at the the top of your career. And obviously it's still going. Now, I know you were born in South Carolina. uh, And for me, that means nature boy, Ric Flair country. And and if you get that reference, people out there, you get it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. I'm not going to waste time explaining it to you. Uh, Mate, what were your earliest memories of, of, uh, you know, life back in South Carolina and your introduction to sports and I know obviously it's very heavy with you know baseball and basketball and and football so was it swimming or was it outside of that it was actually swimming later you know I started out playing basketball football and baseball yeah soccer I played all of those yeah and uh when I was about 10 years old we moved into a community that had its own pool so started going there and just you know for recreation and they had a swim team. Looked like fun. I joined it. And kind of stayed with it. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was, we were very active. And my family was big in sports. And so it was kind of a natural thing to do. Mate, when did the love for swimming, though, start to kick in? And what drew you towards it the most? Was it, you know, being around your teammates? Obviously, you were involved in baseball and basketball and football. Yeah. So that team aspect was something you really uh, enjoyed. Was it the competition side of it? Like, what sort of drew you towards swimming the most? I think mainly because I was better at it than the other sports. Because <laughs> I'm not good at <laughs> and on coordination. So swimming was actually pretty good. Uh, I, I really enjoy being in the water. I like the practices. Um, I like the meets, and I had some success in those early little meets, you know, made me feel good. Uh, so I, I think I just ended up staying with it because I really loved the people I was doing it with. I liked the routine of it, um, and I liked the all the things that went into the process of, you know, preparing to swim. Uh, I think I always sort of thought of my career as a coach, even when I was swimming. And I love the training. I love the new techniques, trying to try new things. So it just kind of fed into that and I just stayed with it. Mate, like most things these days, you know, the longer you've done it, the better you got. Um, you know, there's a lot of football players on TV and at the moment now that maybe were average players at the time, but all of a sudden they, they become legends now because they're on TV and, you know, they played yeah. a long time ago. I myself... When my swimmers ask what a swimmer I was back in the day, I always tell them very, very average. I'm, I'm honest. I was not that good at all. Now, how did you go as a teenage Bob Bowman uh, back in the pool in the high school days? I mean, I know you were captain of your swim team in your final yeah. year uh, at Florida State. So you must have been pretty good. But, you know, how do you look back okay, on your swimming career? And how do you talk to your athletes when they say, Bob, how did you go back in the day? Do you embellish the story a little bit or are you very honest? No. I'm usually pretty honest. Uh, I was pretty, I was an average swimmer. I swam at the conference meet level. I didn't make NC2As. I didn't make the top meet. Um, And I scored some points in the conference meet. And that was about it. And, you know, I always tell them, you know, I hope that I'm a, I hope that I'm a lot better coach than I am a swimmer because you're in trouble if I'm not. 
Well, I think you've got that covered, mate. I think, I think you managed. I think you did manage that one. Now, talk to me about the transition into coaching. Obviously, you showed leadership qualities uh, as a young fella because, you know, as I mentioned before, you were captain of your, of your swim team in your final year. What made you pick up a stopwatch, though? Um, it was sort of – I had always wanted to coach. I, I just – I was interested in coaching. I didn't know that I wanted to do that for a career. But I had an opportunity after my junior year of college to start coaching an age group team in Tallahassee, Area Tallahassee Aquatic Club, Attack, right? Such a great, the best one ever that I've ever had. <laughs> That's one of those things. But um, we, you know, I just got into it and knew that I loved it and just kept coaching. I actually did not swim my senior year. I only swam for three years because I wanted to get into coaching. So I coached that team for the whole year, the next summer, and then uh, got a job at a very big age group club in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Marlins, which is a kind of a historic club in the United States, and just went from there. Mate, not everything about colleges, sports, and parties, um, despite what we see on TV. Yeah. I think maybe that we, the, the movies <laughs> embellish the parties a little bit, but maybe they don't. I don't know. I've never been over there. Uh, you were also there to learn and learn you did. You finished with a Bachelor of Science in Development Psychology and a minor in Music Composition. Now, I want to unpack this for a second. And firstly, with the music side of things, what kind of music were you into? Uh, were you talented at making music? And I already know the answer to that because I did do a bit of research on you. So <laughs> I'll let you t say how talented you were. Right. Uh, and was this a route that you kind of really entertained going down before coaching? Uh, yeah, I had studied music my whole life. So I had always played an instrument. I started piano probably when I was 10. I played the violin. I played the trombone in the band at school. Um, so I was very interested in music and I actually started out majoring in music at Florida state. And when I got there, they said, well, you're going to study composition. So you have to have an instrument. That's going to be the piano. You're required to practice that four hours a day. And I said, well, you know, I'm already practicing the swimming four hours a day. <laughs> yeah. And I did, I actually did this whole thing. I went to class. I did that. At night, I had to go to 20 concerts a semester, you know, where they took a role and you had to do all that. And after about two years of that, I'm like, I, I'm just going to die if I keep on this schedule. So something I had to get. Yeah. And at, to be honest, I just couldn't give up the swimming. I love the people in swimming. And while I love music and I was very good at it, um, I just didn't see myself kind of if you think athletics is competitive, the professional music world is, is like cutthroat, right? You don't have any friends there because there's yeah. very, two spots for a thousand people. So, you know, it seemed to me like I just like the environment better in sports. So I decided to change my major to psychology, which I thought would help me with coaching and uh, get a minor in music. And I still play today. There's a piano behind me. I play sometimes. So, you know, it's, hey, it's so part of my life. <laughs> Talk to me about some of the music you play. Um, I, I read somewhere that it was more like mo you wanted to get into like movie scores and things yeah. like that. So what are your favorite things to play on the piano? Well, I play everything. I play mainly classical music. But that's where my background is. And I love classical music in general. But, you know, yeah, I was interested in writing music for movies. So I love John Williams and all the Star Wars and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm the only person in the world who has not seen all of the Star Wars, and the only ones I saw were in the theater. <laughs> Last one, Empire Strikes Back. How yeah, about that? Yeah. <laughs> I saw the first two and then quit. 
but uh, I, I like the music. I got all the soundtracks of the other one. Uh, so I play that kind of stuff. I play some jazz, you know, kind of mix it up. It's, it's interesting you bring up Star Wars. Is it, is it the fourth over there today? It was. Oh, that it was won. Monday. What's oh, today? Okay. It's the sixth, right? Yeah. Uh, so actually, so, sorry to take it back. It's the seventh. I've lost track of yeah, the week with all this so, COVID-19 no, stuff. The fourth. Yeah, may the fourth be with you. I don't know if it's bloody... I'm Arthur, I'm Arthur at the moment, mate. All these days bleed into one another with... Uh, well, you're being... up early. You know, Stuck I got you up early. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's all good. Mate, something I'm very interested in is psychology. And clearly you were captured by it too, as you said, and, and you found that it would help your coaching. Did the Bachelor of, um, you know, developmental psychology. Was this the beginning of Coach Bowman um, and understanding how people tick and, and what drew you to that, you know, doing psychology? It was definitely a part of it. You know, I, I love the kind of concepts behind how people learn. So I, my developmental psychology is like school psychology, right? So it's the learning theory, the different stages that young people go through as their brain develops, uh, kind of the cognitive theory and, and behavioral change, those kind of things. The, all of that fed right into coaching. I just loved all of that. Yeah. Mate, switching gears into, uh, you know, the introduction is your coaching as an assistant coach. And we, you know, we, we sort of mentioned it before, you know, you were at Florida state, Tallahassee, a bit of Las Vegas, Napa Valley, which you would eventually go back to as, as head coach. And we know you as head coach Bowman, but you know, what we like it as, as, as an assistant coach, sorry. And you know, what sort of lessons did you learn from your mentors there that you carry with you today? Well, I learned something from every coach I work with. Right. And, and that's the whole point. I moved around a lot. Partly by my choice, partly by uh, other people's choices. But, uh, <laughs> I got fired a couple times. So if at first you don't succeed, stay in there, guys. Hang in there. <laughs> Happens to the best of us. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the guy who fired me from my first job actually had to give me my first National Coach of the Year award. So that was a sweet handshake, right? But anyway, nice. I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... I think as an assistant coach, I was as hardworking as a person could be. Seriously, I came from kind of a, like my mother, my father's a hard worker too, but my mom is like puritanical, right? We work, we work, we work. And that's mm -hmm. what we do. So I put in the time, tried to learn everything I could. Um, you know, and some of the situations, like I don't think that, you know, every situation I was in as an assistant coach was perfect. I learned a lot of things not to do. Right. You know, and, and that's something for young coaches as well. Even if you're not, you know, out there coaching with Michael Bowl, you can probably learn some things, even if it's what not to do. Yeah. So yeah. always be open and be, be learning things along the way. Um, I picked up something from every coach I worked with. And what I did initially is when I would coach with someone, I would try to learn how they did it 100 percent. So. You know, when I coached with David Marsh in Las Vegas Gold, I learned 100% how he put his program together. And I guarantee you, if I wrote down a month worth of practices, I could make it look like David Marsh. Same thing when I worked with Paul Bergen. Same thing when I worked with Murray Stevens. I just learned their way. And then I started looking at it and trying to say, well, what is the best part of what they do? And I would try to take that and add it to maybe the best part of what the other guys did. And then over time, you put all that together and it becomes what you do. Mm. So I, I think that's how it evolved 
it's a lot more involved than that. And there are a lot more failures than I get to tell you about. We don't have enough time to go through all that <laughs> because, you know, try and don't succeed many, many times. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's another thing for young coaches. Like I remember as a young coach, I was coaching with David in Las Vegas and I had never made, never had a swimmer qualify for the U S junior nationals, right? Not the nationals, the junior nationals. Right. And I remember I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked five years probably to get one person to make the junior nationals. And today, by the time I was coaching in North Baltimore, I wouldn't even go to junior nationals, right? It'd be like, huh? No, I don't, I don't do that. Right. That used to be my only goal, but now, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe to recruit some kids now I'll go. So it, you just got to stay with it and the things will happen. But don't be discouraged in the early part, right? I like what you say about, you know, having to copy the head coach and, and sort of, you know, understand how they work. I remember I did a bit of work up in Brisbane with a, a, a program I finished with a couple of years ago. And the head coach, Richard Slide, who's a good friend of mine. Yeah. And we walked in and, and I, when I call to say go, I used to say eight, nine. So I'd say eight, nine, and then away they go. Uh-huh. And he said two, one. And I said, okay, well, you know, I say eight, nine. He goes, no, no, you said two, one. And I said, right. oh, but I say eight, nine. Like, it's just, I've always said it like for years. He's like, no, well, we all coach the same. And, yeah, and I said, right. yeah, I say two, one. So now I say two, one. That's the, and I, now it's stuck in me forever. I say two, for one. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, between 1996 and 2004, you were head coach at uh, North Baltimore Aquatic uh, Club in Maryland. And, and this is where you came across paths with a young man by the name of Michael Phelps, uh, who would you know, go on to be the greatest swimmer of all time. And I think we all know that. Now, I don't want to ask the, the old cliche, you know, did you know when you first saw him that he would go on to be? I mean, anyway, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to ask that question, but... <laughs> What was your initial assessment of Michael, though, at sort of age, I think he was 10 or 11 when you first met him? Yeah, I met him. He was 10. I started coaching him when he was 11. Uh, he was incredibly competitive. You know, we're talking about Michael Jordan. We just told, shared that story, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I watched him, and the first time I really got to see him was in the summer. Our pool was had family memberships, right? So families would come and stay all day, and Michael basically would come in the morning when his sister had practice, and then play around the pool all day, and then he would have a practice in the afternoon. So he was there all the time. And I would see him playing games with his friends. They played wall ball. It's a stupid game, but fun. (laughs) And he would just get so upset if he lost. I remember seeing him have a meltdown when he lost one time. So he was ultra competitive. And then I watched him swim in a meet, and you could see in the meets he hated to lose. As a matter of fact, I only saw him lose, I think, one time until he was, you know, swimming against older people. And he was 13. He was swimming against 20-year-olds, and he got beat. But um, he didn't, couldn't do that. You could tell he had the physical attributes, right? He had the arms and legs and flexibility and all that kind of thing. But uh, in general, it was his mindset that I thought really separated him from the others. You mentioned there his mindset. 
uh, obviously it's well known that, you know, he, he had ADHD as a, as a young child and a young man. And obviously that's something he's, he's worked with and throughout his life. Was that, an, you know, something that you had to learn to work with and, and find ways to, you know, help keep him motivated? I know for myself, not long ago, as I mentioned in Albany Creek, I had a, a swimmer who had ADHD and he was like undoing lane ropes when he was bored or like diving down, picking up leaves. And like I did, one day I just saw a, a pile of leaves on the side of the pool that he'd picked up. And I know Michael is a big inspiration to him because he, you know, he does suffer from, you know, with work with that as well. And he's always like, well, Michael had it. So, you know, I, I know like I'm going to get through. Yeah. I can, I can stay motivated. I can get to, and obviously, yeah. you know, and Alex, the boy is actually having a really good swimming career now and building towards that for you as a coach. How did you sort of handle that at the beginning? Well, to be honest in the training environment, other than just having a ton of energy, I couldn't really tell because one of the, I've later learned that one of the characteristics of ADHD is that if athletes that have that do focus on something, they hyper focus on it. Yeah. So when he was focused on the training, he would be hyper focused on it. So that was not an issue. Uh, where it would be an issue is kind of like in the transition between the practices, you know, like running around and throwing water on people and doing all those kind of things. So from that standpoint, I did have to kind of, you know, herd him around a little bit. But in the actual swimming environment, it didn't really show up as much. I think it showed up more maybe at school or at home, and he had to deal with it more there than he did in swimming. Hey, briefly chat to me about, you know, the developmental years in Michael's career, say between 11 and, and 15, when he made his first Olympics, sounds crazy to say 11 and 15, but then finished with he made his first Olympics, uh, only with Michael, could you say that? Right. Um, you know, which is, it's scary. You know, what were some of the fundamentals in your training program? And I guess non-negotiables in terms with Michael and, and obviously with all your athletes, it wouldn't have just right. been with Michael. You know, was it technique and repetition? Was it, you know, building aerobic capacity? What were sort of those elements that you worked on through those years? Well, there was definitely a progression of things. And when he started with me, it was technique. Um, I, the, when I watched him, when he first started in the group, he had very undisciplined technique. I think you can YouTube a, a 200 free Michael Swam at like age 10 and he takes a million strokes in 200 meters. It's unbelievable, right? Before he gets from the wall to the flags, he's taken five or six strokes. Yeah. But he's moving, right? He has a big engine, but he's, he's going, but it's just very undisciplined. So probably the biggest thing we instituted was a six-speed kick and freestyle uh, and made him do that all the time. We worked on his breaststroke. That was a very long-term project. So that was something that he just had to do. And we basically just decided that if he was ever going to reach his full potential, those things had to happen. So in the first four years, that was our primary concern. And once those things started getting taken care of, then we started adding some aerobic training, you know, making sure he swam a full spectrum of events. He swam a 1,500 meters all the time when he was younger. And probably after 2004, he only had to swim it once a year, but he swam a mile every year until Beijing. And then once he stopped swimming it, he wasn't so good anymore. So there's a lesson, coaches. You can kind of think about that. But uh, so I think definitely technique was non-negotiable. And then we moved into more of the training modalities to kind of help him move around, move forward. 
Hey, you mentioned there sort of, you know, his training and talk to me about his sessions and his schedule throughout that time. It's easy to say, oh, you know, you know, it's Michael Phelps. But at the same time, he was 13, 14. He was only, you know, 15 yeah. years old. So what was sort of his volume like through that period? Were, you know, were, was he getting smashed in terms of volume or were you really looking yeah. after him? Because still he was an age group athlete. I think you'd be surprised. It was very low when he started. You know, he was training, he was training seven days a week. But, that, but he never trained a double for a while until he was 14. He never trained two in a row in the school year, maybe in the summer a couple times a week. Uh, I would say his relative volume was pretty low at that point. And then by the time he was 13 and 14, the year going into Sydney, his volume was relatively high. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna say, and when I say relatively high, probably 50,000 a week. You know, nothing crazy. Uh, now after Sydney, when we started doing the, you know, that move up to the next, to Athens, uh, that four year period, it was very high in terms of like, I mean, he could average 80,000 a week, many weeks. Mm. Um, but it was more after he had built up this long progression of five or six years to get there. Yeah. yeah. You had the fundamentals right before you started putting right. in the work. Exactly. Hey, we touched on 2000 Olympics there in Sydney. Um, you know, and this was, I think, your first Olympics as a coach as well. What was yeah. that experience well, like? I had, a swimmer, I had one swimmer make it in 1996, but I wasn't on the staff or anything. Oh, okay. Aaron yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was that experience like for you in terms of nerves? Like, I'm always interested yeah. for, from a coach's perspective. Like, you get there to, your, you know, your first big show, right? And you're like, wow. Okay. And then you realize, oh, shit, I've got an athlete here. And obviously, you had Michael with you <laughs> like, that right. you've got to look after. So then you've got to get your headspace right because you've got to yeah. help get their headspace right. What was that like for you, with your, you know, the, especially coming over here? It was a gradual process, right? And in the early part of my career, I would definitely get nervous when they swam, right? Uh, Sydney was relatively easy because he only had one event, right? There was only three swims. Two were on one day. So it was contained in a couple of days. But we wanted to do well. Um, and, you know, I think my main concern in Sydney was there really wasn't any pressure on us. He was already there. And while we, he wanted to win a medal – all I wanted to do was to make sure he had a successful experience in that environment, that he went through the training camp because he'd never been on a national team. He'd never been on anything until that. And there was a very long training camp leading up to it in California, another one in Brisbane. And then we finally got to Sydney. So my concern was that he handled everything well, that we had a process down, right? That we went through everything we had worked on to kind of make all of it happen. And of course, it was a perfect little learning experience uh, for his Olympic final in Sydney. He's supposed to come over and meet me at the venue two hours before. And I'm there and he doesn't show up. <laughs> it's like Eddie Weeks we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, all of a sudden, somebody calls me and Michael has taken Aaron Pearsall's credential. So he can't use it to get into the Olympic venue. And he also can't get back into the village to get his credential. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole thing that ensues. And the bottom line is he gets there about 45 minutes before the final instead of two hours. <laughs> so that was a great, I was like, when he gets here, we're just going to take our time. I'm just going to let him warm up and then swim. And that's what we did. So it was a great experience for me to kind of just, okay, be calm, 
Don't yeah. be yelling at anybody. It doesn't matter at this point. So he came in and we did an abbreviated warm up, and he swam and he went a second faster. He, he swam quite well. But uh, it, all in all, Sydney for us was just a learning experience and just a really good time, right? I love that Olympics. Probably my favorite one. Well, it's definitely, I think, something uh, I know all Australians look back on fondly, and obviously we're a bit biased, but um, it's definitely, you know, when we look back for swimming, I guess in Australia, that was like the pinnacle time for us as well. Well, yeah, you know, you had Thorpe and those guys swimming, and it was, uh, I'll tell you a story about that that lets you know the difference between swimming in Australia and swimming in America. We're in Brisbane uh, training, and at this point, you know, Michael's made the Olympic team, but so some people kind of know him, but he's not really well-known. In, in America, not known at all, except yeah. for, oh, that kid made the Olympic team. Um, so we're in Brisbane, and I had to go to a bank to get some money. And so I'm there with the bank teller, and I had this shirt on that says USA Swimming. And he's like, oh, you're here with swimming. I was like, yeah. He's like, well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a coach. And he's like, who do you coach? And I was like, this kid, Michael Phelps, and he's like, oh, Butterflyer, 157. He, like, knew his time. <laughs> I was like, oh, I love this country, right? They love swimming and horse racing. They like both of those. Absolutely. <laughs> Mate, Michael finished fifth in the 200 fly in Sydney, yeah. which, you know, we know. And fast forward four years to Athens. Obviously, he's walking away with, you know, eight Olympic medals and six of them were gold. So clearly throughout those four years, and we touched on before with the volume and, and the training mm -hmm. intensity that everything changed but obviously maturity wise you know physically he matured as well you know what talk to me about what sort of work went into those four years you know to elicit you know that sort of amazing you know result it's something that obviously we'll yeah. look back on and go you know nobody else can do that sort of stuff but you know what sort of stuff were you doing behind the scenes i guess there's the analogy of like the duck you know we're on the top of the water he's like looking pretty chilled yeah. but under his his legs are just going 100 mile an hour so obviously to us it looks seamless but, you know, talk to me about the work that was going on behind the scenes. Well, I'll start with what he didn't do, and I think you'll find this interesting. Um, he didn't lift any weights until after Athens. Another thing we saved. So even yeah. though he was doing a high volume in the pool, he wasn't really doing really strenuous weight training. He was doing hard dry land, mm. but more medicine ball, that kind of thing. But what he was doing was on a consistent basis, day in, day out, swimming a high volume of work, maybe nine, you know, thousand a session, but at a very high quality level. So uh, I couldn't really go through all of this, but I actually did yeah. a talk to Rafina. You can look up, there's a PowerPoint out there that has two weeks of that training. But, you know, so one day he would do 10 400s. The next day he would do this huge set, this 4,500. And at the end of it, he might go some ridiculous time, like he might push 54 and 100 free on 110 or something, right? So he was very fit, and he would just day in and day out do something in all the strokes that would add up to that 400 IM, which is what we were focusing on, um, over a long period of time. In the lead-up to uh, Athens, he trained 365 days a year for six years. Like we did not take a day off for six years. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very consistent and it was very kind of a controlled buildup. But once he got to the really big part of it, he was really ready for it and definitely into the training. Like he held himself to a very high standard every day. 
So talk to me about, obviously you mentioned they're not doing, you know, the weights and all that sort of stuff. And I guess looking at where we're at now, you know, so many sort of teenagers are are in the weights room and doing things as well. Is it sort of horses for courses in terms of, you know, that's what was best for Michael or is, is it sort of your, you know, philosophy, I guess that, you know, they shouldn't be doing that sort of stuff until they, I guess, mature physically. Well, I wish they would wait. And honestly, Michael was physically mature enough to do it, but we wanted to have something to add later on that would stimulate growth after the Olympics. And that's how I wish people would think about it. I think in age group swimming today, when I look around America, and it's probably the same in Australia, uh, I see them training these age group kids like college kids, right? They want to do these towers and pull the buckets and do all the toys and use drag socks and all this other stuff right all of which are good yeah now every one of those has a positive effect but if you don't plan this thing out you will have given them everything and then they'll have eight more years in their career and there's nowhere to go Mm. so i i would guard against it and i would encourage younger coaches or coaches of the younger swimmers to just decide what's important at at each step of development and each age, focus on that element and then add something else. Not try to just do everything so you can get a fast time when they're 12 years old. Because ultimately, the best ones are gonna be fast anyway. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're gonna be fast no matter what you give them. So if you give them everything, they'll be really fast, but then they won't have anywhere to go. Mm. Make great advice, I think. Um, you know, you hear a lot of, best coaches out there say that you need a great team around you, you know, and the right people within your team to be the best coach you can be. Talk to me about what you think when you hear the name Greg Harden, how does, how did he help you as a head coach? Oh my God, Greg is such an important person to me in my life, but he was my sport administrator at the university of Michigan. So basically my boss, but he was also head of counseling for the athletic department. And uh, he's someone who, you know, did a, met with, was very good with Michael, right? He did a lot of work with Michael. He did a lot of work with me and really helped us understand, helped us try to put things in perspective, right? Because by the time we had gotten to Michigan, the pressure was really high. The expectations were really high. And mainly the expectations were from us were really high, yeah. right? Because we had started to think, well, maybe eight gold medals is possible. I mean, we had never even really discussed it ever because yeah. I just thought, well, nobody will do that. It just can't happen. Yeah. And once he started swimming along in that quad and he got to Melbourne, right, and swam really well in those world championships, I came home and I said, you know, we can really do this eight gold medals. But the stress of that was great. And I think there were times when Greg Harden would step in and help us get a perspective on what it's going to look like. What does life look like after Beijing? What, you know, if you go and you win everything, what are you going to do? And we were both like, well, I don't know. All we want to do is just go win everything. Yeah. So it was, there were a lot of good questions to ask and, and think about. And uh, incidentally, for your listeners, uh, Greg Harden is credited. Actually, Tom Brady credits Greg Harden with making him the quarterback he is today. Because mm. he was a relatively average quarterback at Michigan. And through working with Greg Harden, really kind of found himself. And so he's a... He's a miracle worker in some ways. He's very, very good. Along the same lines there, talk to me about how important it is to have the right staff and the right team around you. And, and obviously it's progressed a long way 
with with you know what that team looks like these days you know you also you have your physio and your sports psychologist and your nutritionist and, and maybe back in the day you know the head coach was all of those things now all of a sudden you know you, you, yeah, now all of a sudden you've got those people there but how important is it to have the right team around you absolutely critical because as a coach i can't do everything i don't want to do everything and they don't want you to do everything, right? But what, I always looked at it like this. And with Michael, it's like the Uber example, right? It, when it started out, it was me, Michael, and his mom, right? That was the team. <laughs> and I spent more time coaching her than I did him. That was a hard job. <laughs> but anyway, we somehow survived and moved to the next level where we started adding, you know, strength coach, tr- athletic trainer, physio, uh, nutrition, all of these things. And then it kept growing. We had an agent. We had a publicist. We had lawyers. We have accountants. We have this whole business, basically, built around it. And my job is to be like the spoke in the center. And, and, you know, if Michael was in the middle, I was a little ring around him. And then I got to decide how much of these other people got access to Michael, what they were going to do, and how it all fit together. And I think the reason that was so successful is that basically – I was able to make those decisions and he trusted me to make those decisions and he didn't have to think about it. And there was never one part of it that took over the whole thing. It was all balanced. Um, our agent, Peter Carlisle, he's worked with me and Michael since 2002 and we actually chose him uh, because he was just, we felt like he was the best fit and we would communicate well with him. But Peter and I would talk a lot more than Peter and Michael would about his opportunities. And before Peter ever presented something to Michael, he would present it to me first. And so there was a scale of things. Mm. If it was a one, that meant it wasn't important at all. So you could just like, forget it, you know? Yeah. Can Michael do, you know, be in a parade? No. Okay. That was a no. If it was a five, it meant we were absolutely going to do it. Is Michael going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated? Hell yeah, he's going to do it. How can he do it? Yeah, exactly. And then there was like a three, and those were the ones that were the toughest because then I would have to decide how do we arrange training for him to do something else. Mm. And I would say 60% of the stuff that came through, Michael never even knew about. We would just decide. And then the stuff that was important, we'd take to Michael, and then he could decide if he wanted to do it or how we were going to make it happen. Mm. So I felt like that was the big part of his success is that we worked as a team to sort of make things happen and we weren't piecemeal doing things. Man, I think that's, again, great advice. The only thing I think people may not be able to uh, resonate with is uh, maybe the publicist and all that sort of stuff. But right, otherwise, right. The, the, you know, you being the main wheel of that team, I think yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. great advice. <laughs> uh, obviously, something I think you don't get a lot of credit for, and you touched on it before with, you know, 1996. And, and you know, certainly yeah. to the wider public, you know, you're known as just Michael Phelps's coach, right? You know, I, I looked yeah. for you on, on Wikipedia, and it's just a whole list of... Of, of you and Michael, <laughs> I know that, you know. I know there's more, so you know we had to, I had to do a bit yeah, more right. more digging. You know, you've actually you know mentored and coached um, you know a great number of talented athletes, and one of which is Alison Schmidt, which you talked about before, who's a ten time Olympic medalist in her own right. You know, talk yeah. to me about Alison, and, and what are some of the differences between your approach in coaching Alison as opposed to say Michael? Uh, well. Allison obviously has been part of our family a long time. She started in 2006 and, uh, and she was 14 at that time. She trained with my group at Michigan. 
made the team in 2008, went to the University of Georgia, and then the Summers came and swam for me. And then the year before 2012, she stayed with us and trained that whole year and then, you know, did quite well and has been with us ever since. Um, but I think Allison's a completely different animal than Michael. Uh, while she's very talented and hardworking, she has a very different personality. She's very easygoing, lighthearted. If Allison gets serious, she won't swim well. Whereas if Michael doesn't get serious, he probably won't swim well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of, you balance things like that. So for Allison, I always have to make sure she's happy. A happy Allison is a fast Allison. So, and the goal there is to get her to that level and not go over the top. I remember in uh, 2012, Greg Troy, who was coaching Elizabeth Beisel, uh, Allison and Beisel were roommates, and they were together all the time, and they were nonstop laughing, but it was getting to the point where it was like, too much. <laughs> we, I remember we had a little huddle where all of us like, we want you to enjoy this, but maybe you can just, you know, these swims are coming up. So let's save some of that energy and put it into the races. So I think that's the challenge with Allison is to kind of find that level. Whereas with Michael, he can just pretty much get there if you, you know, leave him alone. Mate, and how much of, you know, working with um, Allison and, and I know in doing my research, she suffered through, you know, some depression and through certain, you know, stages of her career. How, you know, much did that help you as a, as a head coach, I guess, grow? And I know you've done, you know, psychology and stuff like that as well. So, you know, you probably have a little bit of info and background in terms of how to best navigate that. But obviously, until, you know, it's in front of you, you don't really, you know, have all the answers. How did, you know, you go about that? Uh, yeah, Allison in particular was a great learning experience for me in that she never really, all of her sort of depression symptoms came out after the London Olympics. And what I didn't understand was how much it affected her and probably affects all swimmers when you go from being Allison Schmidt, this nice girl who was on the Olympic team in 2008 to Allison Schmidt, this girl who just won four gold medals and two, a silver and a bronze, right? Whatever it was in London. And then your whole life is different when you go back home. And I remember, uh, Allison called me maybe, I don't know, six weeks after London. And, she called me. I was in Baltimore. She was at school at Georgia and she was just in tears, which for her is quite unusual. I had only seen it maybe once or twice before ever. And I remember thinking, you just won all these gold medals. We worked so hard. You did all this. What could be wrong? You're a star. You're making money. You're doing all this stuff. And, uh, and, and But that was really the beginning, I think, of, of Allison's sort of issues. And then she had some other things that, you know, with her family and her cousin committed suicide. There were some things there um, that we really worked through uh, with professional help because that's what you have to do as a coach. You're not a psychologist, right? We, we know that we can help, but our job is to sort of see what needs to be done and then help them find, you know, help. Uh, but it was a quite a long process because her swimming basically after 2012, it was non-existent until 2016, right? You know, it just didn't really happen. She didn't make a world championship team the next year. She didn't make the Pan Pack. She didn't make the next Worlds. She did make the Pan Am Games, I guess, the year before and swam okay. And then she made the Olympic team again and won a gold medal. So 
that was a, a sort of a good thing, but it took that whole four-year period for us to work through those issues. And mm. I learned a lot from that. <laughs> Mate, I want to share a moment with you now. And, and you know, I'd like to um, get your thoughts on a few moments that stick out to you once I finish this. But for me, you know, it was a moment that I witnessed, you know, to me, greatness. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of good. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, pretty good. But, you know, when I witnessed this, I mean, this was just blew my mind. And obviously, you know, with you on the show, it pertains to Michael. So, <laughs> but obviously, you know, you know, then it sort of solidified to me just how good he was. The year was 2007. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but I'll, yeah. maybe I'll rejog your memory as I go through. Uh, and it was Jewel in the Pool. So it was Australia versus US uh, yeah. in Sydney. And obviously, you know, for a lot of people out there, probably you'll think back and especially Australians will remember this as the day Libby Trickett, you know, led off next to Michael and went 52.99, first woman ever to go under 53. Um, And a backstory to that, which I'm sure you know, is Libby trying to psych Michael out in the, in the, um, marshalling room before they went out there she was puffing her chest out and <laughs> trying to right, say come on Michael let's go and she tells the story like he was like looking around like is she serious like what's happening here <laughs> are, we, are we gonna are we having a fight like what's happening but she was just joking around like come on let's go right right but yeah people will probably remember it for that for me it was a 200 backstroke now um I had to do a little bit of research into who else was in the race but I, I knew uh, Aaron Pearsall was in it as well. And he was obviously, I think, the world record holder around that time yeah. in, in the 200 backstroke. Now, Pearsall was leading the whole race and they were coming into the last turn. And, uh, and Michael was just off his feet. Michael obviously lifted his rate into the turn, hit his turn and smashed this 15 meter underwater like you've never seen or I've never seen. Right. And actually came out ahead of Aaron and, and held on and, and, and won that. You know, for me, that was just amazing because obviously this isn't something that Michael was synonymous with. And I'm sure you've seen him do backstroke. So you knew he could do a bit of backstroke. And I mean, looking at the time, I think he went 156 and we know Aaron could have gone, I think his PB was 154 or something. So whether they, you know, whether something else was at play behind the scenes, I don't know. But for me, like I will never forget that underwater, that turn that just solidified to me. Like, how good is this guy? Like, I don't think there's anybody else in the world. Yeah. Well, that, you know, you that know, could have done it in a race that isn't something that's his pet event. Sure. I, well, later that summer at our nationals in 2007, he missed the 100 back world record by three 100s and the 200 back by, I think, six 100s. So he was a good backstroker. Mm. <laughs> that was one of, I, I would say, if I look back on his career, the thing that I would most wanted, wanted, would have wanted him to do was break a world record in backstroke since he was so close. Mm. And that really would be pretty special to have all that. But, uh, yeah, I remember that race. And, you know, the Melbourne meet was Michael's best meet by far. And in many ways, I think it was better than Beijing. Um, so, yeah, he was at a good place then. Mate, talk to me about, as I said, you know, that moment blew me away because I, I was in the stands watching it. And back then sure. in Australia, the stands were full. Like, it was a packed house. Right. What, what sort of, um, you know, swims have you witnessed? And it might not be with Michael. You might have seen, you know, something yeah. else on pool deck. Has there anything that you've watched that just sort of blew you away? Like, wow. Yeah. Thorpe's 400 in Sydney, right? Come on. First night of the Sydney Olympics. The building was shaking. I'll never forget that. I yeah. actually have a picture of it in my office. You know, the yeah. picture shows me up and everybody else is way <laughs> back here. I, I will never forget that. Um, so that's definitely one. Um, you know, some of the great relays, like, you know, we, we always remember the Beijing relay because of the French thing, you know, 
But, you know, the, we just watched Michael, MBS, NBC just did all of the Olympic races over the past few weeks because they needed some content. <laughs> yeah. And we watched all these Olympics, and uh, we got to see the 800 free relay from Athens. That is a relay. I will never forget Klee Keller swimming Thorpe in that one, right? So it's um, – those are some that stand out. And Michael's had a ton, right? You know, Michael's 200 free in Beijing. That's a, a technically flawless race, in my opinion, for him. And his best race, I think he would probably tell you that's his best race ever was this 200 free from Beijing. Mate, you mentioned Beijing there, and we're about to get into it. So many amazing memories, again, as you, yeah. as you just mentioned from there. Um, you know, things that stand out to me was obviously, you know, Michael touching out Kavik 0.01 and, and winning yeah. the fly, which still, I watched it the other day, and, like, it still doesn't make sense to me how Michael got his fingers on the wall before that poor, poor Kavik. Like he looks next to him and he's like, no, I've got this. And then he looks up, hang on a second, what happened there? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, no, obviously, uh, you know, Michael going on to win, you know, eight, eight gold medals and, and right. breaking Mark Spitz's record of seven. You know, talk to me about those Beijing games. And I mean, you had the front row seat there. Well, the thing that was best for me was that through the course of that week in Beijing, Michael basically exhibited all of the things that we had worked on his whole career. Like all the little lessons that I had tried to kind of instill in him, they sort of came out at the right moment. We were, I was merciless about finishing repeats correctly in practice. So Michael has done a thousand practice finishes correctly. And the ones he didn't do correctly, sometimes we'd start the whole set over. You know, I used Which to I'm be sure a real bastard in the early days. I was like very hard to deal with. Yeah. So, you know, you do, you do 15200s and I don't like the finish on the last one. We used to do Bill Sweet in a minute, right? We just do it again. <laughs> um, so he, it was ingrained in him that. Yeah. So to see that come out, part of that was he couldn't make a conscious decision, but he sort of went back to the database and knew how to get his hand on the wall. Um, when his goggles filled up with water in the 200 fly, we had had experiences with that where we had kind of set things up for him to deal with some things. Um, just the way he managed the whole week, because I think what people don't understand is, you know, you see the swims, but so much goes into it before and after, right? It's so, it was, uh, oh my God, 64,000 meters of warming up and swimming down just before the races, it was, I, I can't remember how many, 1800 meters worth of races. There's a lot of racing. Yeah. Um, no, maybe it's more than that, but anyway, you can do the math. So you had all that, but then you have a doping test. You have the media, you have all the medal ceremonies. You have all of these things that have to be juggled. Uh, and on top of that, the finals were in the morning, like they're going to be in Tokyo. Right. Mm. So it was just a lot of things that we had to really, really plan for and work on. And all of it just sort of worked the way we predicted. So that was kind of cool. You know, when you mentioned there all the work behind the scenes and people don't get to see it, the, the vision I have in my mind is that photo, right? Of like the guy standing on top of the mountain with the flag and then underneath are all the bodies of, of the people that helped him get to there that you yeah, don't see because yeah. it's under the ground. Right, right. Yeah. But at the moment, there's a brilliant documentary on uh, on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls on Netflix, which I know we talked about earlier, and I know you've been watching, um, and everyone's raving about it, and I'm loving it myself. Uh, now, there's a storyline in there about Dennis Rodman 
uh, when he was at the Detroit Pistons and, and he was a bit of a loose cannon, uh, you know, he was a bit eccentric, he was a bit aggressive to the point where assistant coach sort of said to, the, you know, the head coach, Chuck Daly, mate, I think we need to rein him in here a little bit. Like he's getting a bit too full on. <laughs> right. And, and Coach Daly's response was, well, you don't put a saddle on a Mustang. Now, and I loved that line because I, I think it's important to learn from each athlete and everyone needs sure. different, you know, different things. Now, for yourself, I know Michael has had his hiccups in front of the, the public, especially in yeah. 2009. And I'm sure you've had other athletes that, you know, have, you've had to handle differently with different approaches and different situations. I mean, how true is that, is that statement of, of Coach Daly in terms of, you know, you don't put a saddle on a Mustang? And has there been moments where, you know, something's happened outside of, I guess, your rules and regulations that you kind of, as you said before, with 2000, you know, Michael came up and I'm probably in your head, you're like, <laughs> what is happening? But you're like, yeah, no, it's right, all right, right, just let it go. Have you had moments like that? We have had, yeah, many. And I probably grew more as a coach from the time between – 2008 and 2012 than at any other time because Michael was not, and rightly so, not incredibly motivated to do the training. Because what are your goals? Win eight more gold medals? We knew that wasn't going to happen. It's not happening, right? It was like, okay, uh, just go and make some more money. Okay, well, you can do that. But it was just, there wasn't a really clear goal for him to get him motivated to really train. So, I started out handling it as poorly as I could handle it, right? I just got mad. Every time he came in the pool, I'd yell at him about it. And guess what? He, he would leave and not come back for a long time. So finally, I started saying, okay, this time when he comes back, I'm just going to give the best practice I can give today, and that's it. I'm not going to talk to him about tomorrow, next week, two years from now, what he did last month. We're just going to take it a day at a time. And when I did that, things got a ton better, and he pulled it together and had a pretty good Olympics. Um, could have done better. He would tell you that today. We watched all those London races as well, and none of us were very happy with them. But, you know, considering what he had put in, it was a pretty good performance. Um, but I think I had to grow a lot through that period because there are things that are outside my control and, and let's be honest, going into Beijing, I was a complete control freak. So for 12 years, I had basically controlled every aspect of what Michael did all day long and night, all the time. And when he finally had some freedom, it was hard for me to deal with that because I liked the predictable results, right? I liked the clockwork, you know, get up and break a world record. So after I learned that, you know, he's a person that has to have a life outside of this and you know, what are the next stages in his life going to be like? Uh, things got a lot better. And I think I coached everybody better because of that. Well, mate, I'm sure it wasn't as bad as that story we did see on the documentary with Dennis going on like a three-day bender in Vegas and Michael Jordan having to, to go get him out of the hotel um, room. Maybe. We <laughs> will save that for another he podcast if you do have Vegas. He had some trips to Vegas. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Wait, as I, I mentioned, <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, Michael would go on to win 28 Olympic medals, uh, 23 of them are gold, which is, you know, phenomenal. Along the way, obviously, 33 world champs, uh, you know, 
world records, so many other things. One of the reasons, you know, Michael was so prolific with medals is his love for being in relays. And, and you know, he's always, especially through 2004 and 2008, massive program. Was that ever an issue to you for, as a coach, like looking at all the relays he was in as well and going, oh, you know, maybe it'd be better if you sat this one out. Like, we're probably going to do well anyway. And I'm assuming Michael would have been like, no, I, I want to get in there. Oh, no. Actually, we wanted to be on every relay because the USA had a great chance to win every one, right? I mean, yeah. we had good relays. So we always wanted to be on the relays. Um, and he always wanted to swim them. So, no, there was no problem with motivation about that. And we just factored it into the training. Just had to I, do it. Yeah. Mate, 2015, you make a move to Arizona and, and that's where you are yeah. now and, and you become the head coach of Arizona State University. How was that transition for you and, and sort of what differences did you find in, in the programs and the systems? Well, it's been amazing. And, uh, you know, the, the things that are great about the American college system are the resources, right? We have an amazing facility. The pools are fantastic. The strength tra training the medical, all of the support, right? So it's a training center, right, yeah. is what it is. Uh, and we have a budget to recruit the people we want to come in and do it. And, and so those things are really wonderful. Um, one of the reasons I went back to college is after Michael's career, I knew he'd be winding down after 16. And I had had a great time coaching the college team at Michigan. I had left there basically because after Beijing, Michael and I had some opportunities to do some things that we'd never have a chance to do again, you know, to kind of set myself up financially down the road. So we did that. Yeah. Um, but I loved college coaching and I hadn't really had enough time to get to the top level of college coaching. So that's one thing I haven't done is won a college championship. And I wanted to build a team to do that. I didn't want to just take over a team that maybe was in the top two or three and just kind of keep it going. I wanted to kind of take a team that was nowhere and build it up. And we had great, uh, I felt leadership at ASU who wanted an elite program and I was able to come in and basically over the last five years, we built it to a point where we're getting there. You know, it's a, uh, hasn't been easy, but I wanted something that would, I'd have to put myself out there. Right. I don't want to just get old and complacent. <laughs> now, mate, if I mention apples, oranges, and mangoes, what does that yeah. mean to you? Oh, a healthy diet. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Those are our training groups at ASU. There are three was, large training groups. Thank you for taking me there. I was, I, was, I was hoping you didn't hang me out to try and leave it like that. The apples, the oranges. All the listeners the are like, why is he asking questions about fruit? What is Has this guy lost the plot? Exactly. <laughs> no, we just decided to do that because I hate giving names like sprint, middle distance, distance, and uh, you know, kind of labeling people. So we just pick out things that really don't mean anything and go like that. With your program, is there flexibility within that? So do you often have, you know, the apples training? And this sounds so weird to say it, but obviously it's not weird for you to say it. Do you have the apples training with the oranges or the mangoes? You know, We do. Yeah, a lot of times. There are days of the week where some apples will come over or some oranges will train with the apples. Some days they're all together. We call it fruit salad. The workout says fruit salad. Everybody does the same Very thing. nice. <laughs> Mate, for all the listeners, can you be a bit more specific in terms of, you know, who the apples are, who the oranges are, and who the mangoes yeah. are? Um, the mangoes are the sprinters, the real sprinters, people who swim up 50 and 100, period, right? Uh, and there's a, I don't know, group of 12 of those guys. 
they're the apples are the next step up and they're kind of the lower end of middle distance. They're people who would really swim a hundred maybe of the stroke over a 200, but they do do a 200. So they're kind of the lower middle distance group. And then the oranges are a bigger group, but there are two coaches, myself and Logan Herka, my assistant, we cover that group. And that includes the upper middle distance group, people who would swim a 200 of 200 fly, 400 IM, 500, 400 meter free. Uh, and then the real distance swimmers, the people who would swim a mile. So that's kind of how it's, you know, laid out. Now, mate, you've got a, a, a book out, a best-selling book, uh, 2016, I think it came out, called Golden Rules, 10 Steps to World-Class Excellence in Life and Work, which is brilliant. I've actually, I did start reading it. I'm not lying about that. I, I, I knew uh, you were coming on, so I'm like, well, I've got to do my research, right? So I started reading it. I've got it on my phone. Um, okay. you know, talk to me about the book and, and the process and, and how sort of, uh, you know, did that come about? Well, through all of this stuff with Michael, his career, I was constantly asked about the process we use to goal set, to, you know, visualize, uh, and the, the kind of way, the process we go through of just getting these performances. And I would tell more and more people about it. And some people came to me and they said, you know, this would work in business. It would work in anything. So why don't you write a book about it? And we'll just sort of see if, maybe a broader range of people could benefit from that method. And so that's how the book came about. And it's basically takes you through the steps that we would use to get a performance in swimming so that you could transfer it into other areas of your life. Is it a one book deal, mate? Do you have, do you have more in you? Are, are you interested in, in, you know, writing more? I'm definitely interested in writing more. Um, I don't think I want to do a swimming book, but I definitely want to do a development book, you know, yeah. It'd be nice. Well, as I said, I, I think I'm like three chapters in and it, it so far it's, it's brilliant, mate. So I can um, definitely say you, you should be going for another book. It's, it's really <laughs> good, well written. The foreword uh, in the book um, is, is by Michael and he writes that he doesn't believe that any other coach, you know, would have been able to achieve what you and him have, have achieved, which is, I guess, probably something that a lot of people out there say in the wider public. Not, not to bag you, but I guess they would yeah. say, you know, like Michael was a freak, of course. Like if yeah, he yeah, landed in any program, he would have been, you know, which I think is naive to say. Um, obviously, you know, Michael, you know, regards you, uh, you know, as a father figure and, and obviously a mentor and a friend. How important is that to you when you look back on the legacy and, and everything that you guys have achieved together and, and you know, done for the world of, of sport and swimming? How important yeah. is it? the friendship side of it as opposed to obviously the result side of it. Does one outweigh the other or do they complement each other? I think they complement each other. And, uh, well, it means a lot to me because Michael would tell you we're family now. And I, that's how I think about it. Yeah. I'm over there every day and we see each other every day and we almost never talk about swimming, which is crazy. Right. Um, so I think that's important because it just goes to show that we grew together through this whole process. Right. Um, clearly the legacy that he has left in swimming and just raising people's expectations about what is possible. Uh, I'm so happy to have been a tiny part of that, right? He did the the work. Um, but I do think our relationship after is very special and to have those three little rub rats that call me grandpa over there, that's the best. 
Mate, 2021 Tokyo Olympics, if it, if it all goes ahead, which I, you know, is still up in the air a little bit, you know, once everyone's back in the pool, what does 2021 look like for you in, in your mind? You know, what, what has it got in store for coach Bob Bowman and his team? Get the crystal ball out and yeah. fix some stuff for well, We have some, you know, we have some shots. Uh, we have uh, Allison, right, is actually training as well as she's ever trained. Mm. So I think she could be quite good. Um, we have Haley Flickinger. She's the number one butterflyer, 200 flyer in the world right now. I think she's also doing a great job and has been doing a really good job in this kind of interim period. She's the one in the endless pool over there, kind of just swimming butterfly nonstop for an hour every day. Um, so, you know, we have those guys. I have some people on my college team that I'm super excited about. I'm not going to even name them because I don't like to give anybody the spotlight <laughs> until they earn it. But you will know some of them a year from now. Okay. Mate, away from swimming and coaching for a second, you know, what do you get up to? What, what do you like to do when you, on your time away? Obviously, we talked about baking and, and the stuff yeah, you're getting yeah, up yeah. to during COVID. But when everything's going full throttle, how do you sort of get away from swimming and find time for yourself? Well, I love to travel. And, you know, one of the things that I've sort of decided for myself in the second part of my career is that I'm actually going to take time away from the training program and see the world the way that I want to do it. Right. I'll give you an example. Um, oh my, I never miss practice, right. Ever for 30 years, never. It would be like one day I got sick and didn't come. And the, the, I don't know, everyone freaked. They didn't know what to do. But, um, so not it, I didn't do it this past year, but in 2018, I took a, I guess, almost three weeks off in December. It was during our Christmas training period, big training thing, and uh, went to Europe. So, you know, spent time in Spain, Portugal. Nice. It was amazing, actually. Uh, you know, it, it was absolutely amazing. And that's what I want to do more of. And guess what? When I came back, everybody had trained really well. Nobody, you know, everything was normal. Mm. So I'm going to keep doing that as we go. And, and I was actually going to come to Australia for six weeks uh, this year. After 2020, I was going to come in the, you know, November, December, because I've been swimming myself. The no, a new thing I started this year was I started swimming and found out that I actually really like doing it. I kind of hadn't done it forever. And I want to swim in all the rock pools, right? Yeah. So I want to swim in icebergs and I want to go to some of the others. I have this on Instagram. I follow all the rock pools. So I'm getting this list and I want to go and swim in those. So I kind of want to do that and I'll definitely do that. I don't know if it'll be this year because the Olympics got put back, but probably in 21, I will definitely be there. I love going to Australia. Mate, talk to me about being a granddad and how is grandpa different from coach Bowman on pool deck? Has it helped, I guess, mellow yeah. you out a little bit more? Or? You know, it has helped me a lot. Um, and I've been working on myself a lot anyway. Another COVID thing is I've been really reading and trying to, you know, just get better as a person, coach. And uh, being around those kids has helped me quite a bit. You know, and, and one of the things as coaches, right, here's something that you can think about. How do you talk to yourself, right? Mm -hmm. I found once I started really kind of paying attention to it, that I would be so hard on myself for everything, 
right? I would be, I would talk to myself in a way that I would never talk to you or any other person. And that doesn't seem to really make sense, right? I'm the, you know, I'm number one here and I just tell myself I'm stupid all the time or whatever. So now that I have my grandkids, I always do a little test. I talk to myself the way that I would talk to Boomer, grandson, number one, Mm -hmm. just turned four, right? Somebody you love. How would you talk to somebody you love and care about? That's how you should talk to yourself. So that's a little thing that's made me a little different and hopefully a little better. And I'm trying to share that with my team because I think the way we talk to ourselves has a lot to do with how we live and how we treat others. Absolutely. I think it's great advice. Now, mate, before we got, uh, before we get into the less serious questions here and, and finish yeah. up with a, with a, a bit of fun, um, if there's any young coaches out there listening today, you know, what sort of advice would you give to them in regards to, you know, building a legacy and building a program like you have? Learn all of the elements of performance. Don't just try to go in there and make something up. Learn the science of it. That's very important. Learn the science behind what you're trying to do. Then go work with the best coach you can find. Figure out how they do it. Learn to say 2-1 instead of 8-9, whatever it is, right? (laughs) You know what I found? We kept doing that on our program. I never used to do that. I used to say, ready, go. Mm -hmm. And then when I came in, some of my coaches would count down like 4, 3, 2, 1. And I finally said, nobody say anything. And as soon as we did that, everybody left on time. They just go <laughs> right on time instead of early. They'd always start going early. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Learn how the best people do it and then try to always be learning, right? You don't ever figure it out. You get some things that you'll use and you'll keep using because you know they work, but you have to keep adding to it. You have to keep taking away and you're always sort of evolving into the person that you could be. There you go. Mate, let's finish with some less serious questions. And I think sometimes these are a good way of getting to know you a little bit more and what you, you know, what you like away from the pool and what you like at home. So basically rapid fire, first thing that comes to your mind. So favorite song uh, or artist to listen to? Favorite, favorite artist, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven. There you go. Nice. I, I don't think I'll ever get that answer on the podcast again. So I like the originality, mate. Well done. Uh, favorite movie to watch? You can do either one. Yeah. Next. Favorite movie to watch in isolation? Uh, Hoosiers, 100%. My favorite movie by far. Favorite book that you would recommend? The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I would recommend Golden Rules myself, but yeah, that's... I'll, I'll recommend that out for you. What about favorite uh, meal of all time? What do you like to eat for dinner? Uh, it's Italian for sure. I don't know specifically. Great choice. Ravioli, pizza, yeah. lasagna. Mate, you've got Carbs me excited meat, now. You know, I'm going to have to go have breakfast soon. You've got me hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you mentioned just before that, you know, some of the countries you've visited already, you know, given your travels yeah. with Michael and the ones you want to get to. Give me some of your favorite countries to visit. 100% Australia is number one. Absolutely love it. Love everything about it. Uh, Spain, Barcelona, amazing place. Mm. Uh, I need to spend some more time. I'd like to go to like the Scandinavian countries that haven't been there yet. Mate, if we were at the pub and hopefully, you know, if you come back out to Australia one day, we'll catch up. And if we're at the bar, what drink would I be ordering for you? If I'm with you, it's some kind of beer. But if I was in anywhere else, it would be some sort of wine. I'm a wine guy more than beer. 
No, with me, it's not so much beer. I love my whiskey. I love my wild turkey. Oh, yeah. No, I can't Jack do Dallas. the hard stuff. <laughs> now mate uh, i think it's a great chance to wrap it up here i know we've got a, a q a lined up with a, a lot of australian coaches and I, I can see them all lining up in the waiting room so we need to we need to get to yeah, that right, here we go yeah exactly um mate, i want to thank you very much for um you know taking the time to come on here i mean it's an absolute honor and a privilege to speak to you for for myself and um, you know, to go through your unbelievable career so far. And, and, and there's still many, many more years to go. Uh, on behalf of the world of swimming, I just want to thank you and Michael and, you know, for your contributions to the sport. Without question, you know, Michael is the greatest swimmer of all time. And I don't care what anyone says, I think he's the greatest Olympian and greatest athlete of all time. And, you know, and that's just my opinion. But, uh, mate, again, you know, thank you very much. Stay safe over there, my friend. Good luck, you know, with your continued success, um, you know, with Arizona and hopefully get back into the pool soon. Um, but until then, mate, thank you very much for coming on Off the Block Swing Podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you and be well. Thank you. Today's episode is proudly powered by Pro Swim Workouts. I just want to take this opportunity to personally thank Coach Bowman for coming on the show. It still blows me away that he was up for coming on the podcast. But what was more amazing was Bob donating more of his time at the end of our chat for a Zoom Q&A with a select group of coaches following the podcast. He was a total pro. All up, I think we we're looking at each other's heads on Zoom for about three hours, which I feel very sorry to Bob for, uh, you know, looking at my massive melon for that long. So I'm extremely grateful and absolutely humble that who would do that for me so Bob thank you very much from me to you now next week is a week that I'd like to call the next wave with episodes 20 and 21 dropping on Tuesday and Friday with two of New South Wales and Australian swimming's brightest young age group stars in Charlie Brown from Manly Swim Club and Joseph Hansen from Knox two names you'll be hearing a lot more from I have no doubt in the years to come and two chats you will not want to miss until then, there, guys, I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did bringing it to you, and it's bye for now.